You're Going to Die, the podcast is brought to you by YG2D, a 501c3 nonprofit bringing diverse communities creatively into the conversation of death and dying, inspiring life by unabashedly sourcing our shared mortality. To find out more, visit www.yg2d.com. I usually wait days, sometimes weeks, before I record the segments that accompany the interviews, like the one I'm about to share with you in this episode. And oh my goodness, I couldn't wait this time. The tears are still drying on my face. We all have this lineage of teachers, whether it's from books we've read or documentaries or even workshops and conferences we've attended. We have this lineage of teachers who have brought us wisdom, knowing lessons, stories from their own work and being in the world maybe years, decades before we started doing the thing we must do in our lives. If you can relate to that, then you can relate to what it feels like to have this episode's guest on You're Going to Die, the podcast. Hello and welcome to the show, your Creatively Conscious Mortality podcast. I'm your host, Ned Buskirk. Yes, that's how I want to highlight this episode's guest. What it means to have that lineage, and we all have it, and then get a chance to talk with them. I had to really keep in mind that I was having a conversation with someone that I could learn so much from and remember that this is not all about me. We need to have a conversation that makes sense for our listeners, the ways it will matter to you. And so I think we did a good job of sharing that kind of conversation. The most basic necessary amount of background you need to know for why it matters to me to have Francis Weller on the show is his book, The Wild Edge of Sorrow. This book has not only helped me personally in my own life with my own grief, but it's been hugely influential in how I've done work creating space for our community's grief through our nonprofit. So this is a go get the book, The Wild Edge of Sorrow. And Imagine a book at the top of the list for a book that matters to you in a conversation you care about deeply, and then imagine getting to talk to that author. Okay, you're all caught up on where I'm at emotionally, (laughs) why I just couldn't wait to get this episode out, how much I'm feeling about sharing this conversation with you. Francis Weller is a psychotherapist, writer, and soul activist. He's the author of the best-selling book, The Wild Edge of Sorrow, Rituals of Renewal and the Sacred Work of Grief. Also, The Threshold Between Loss and Revelation with Rashini Ree, and In the Absence of the Ordinary, Essays in a Time of Uncertainty. He's introduced the healing work of ritual to thousands of people and is currently completing his fourth book, Facing the World with Soul and Why It Matters. I cannot wait to share this conversation with you, so I'm not going to wait any longer. I hope you enjoy this episode of You're Going to Die, the podcast with Francis Weller. There's lots of tributaries. There's the deeply personal ones, um, early loss of my father uh, through stroke when I was a young teen, 
Um, but also 40 years as a therapist, you realize that what you're sitting with, no matter what the symptom is, it's always accompanied by, by loss, by sorrow. So, you know, you begin to see that what you're really working with is uh, layers and layers of sediment of untouched sorrow. Whether it shows up as depression or anxiety or addiction or relationship troubles, whatever it is, there's loss. And there's not just personal loss, there's generations of loss that titrate through the lineages and are carried in the bodies. And then now, um, what I see around me is just the saturation of sorrow. From whatever way you look, whether it's towards the um, cultural lens or through the lens of climate catastrophe, uh, collapse, um, there is no way that we can walk down the street without seeing grief in each other's eyes. Um, even if you're strategizing around avoidance and numbness, you, you can still feel it. It's, it's, uh, it's what I call in the ambient field, we are in the territory of grief all the time. And we are so ill-prepared to touch it. So we spend most of our time either with anesthesia or distraction or or, uh, you know, keeping ourselves exceedingly busy or online or doing something to avoid the grief's presence. And I don't blame anybody for that. I think it's just when you live in a grief phobic culture and there's no education around sorrow, um, the heart gets overwhelmed so quickly. So, you know, what drew me to this? Well, again, working with people individually, but then I was introduced to ritual work in the mid 90s. And I began to see something happen when we began to gather in circle. And some piece of our psychic structure has been anticipating this for thousands of years. That when we gather in this form and we share this kind of context, the deep soul has a chance to say, that's what I've been waiting for. So once I was inside that framework, I felt really called to not only work with individuals and, and tell them, you know, this is a good place to learn how to tolerate contact with grief, but you'll need a larger body at some point to move the grief because grief has always been communal. It has never been a private thing that you go to a private therapist to somehow get rid of. Grief is looking for this deep context. And so when I began working with grief rituals, it felt like a profound sense of repair in our torn lineage collectively, particularly for white Western uh, folks. That tear has become so problematic that we are ripping the world apart in lieu of not being able to grieve. So I'll, I'll just stop there. I, I just... That's enough of an intro. <laughs> it's good. It's good. It's good. Yeah, because the longer you go, which I could listen all day, the more questions start to pile up. Oh, my goodness. There's so many things. I want to stay with the beginning a little bit. I imagine with your work in therapy as a psychotherapist, correct? Correct. What I'm curious about is still the beginning. So you have these individual sessions you're having often and really getting present in that space because it's probably most commonly say in those like 70s 80s 90s uh the place people would bring their grief because it's private and i feel like we taught like my mom and that pendulum swing you keep these things yourself 
And then maybe you go to a therapist, you know, you go to the professional. And so I'm wondering if the next step for you in terms of creating that first circle of community being in grief together, was it a bereavement group for the loss of a parent or what was that very, uh, you know, beginning of the, oh my gosh, we're all together. I imagine there had to be one moment when you have this, my version is probably church. And, and that's something I went through and needed and don't, it's not a part of my life in the ways it was, but I needed it like that. And then my first own, like making the space was the open mic, you're going to die poetry, prose and everything goes, which was that first time right after my mother-in-law died in 2012, where I finally said, oh my gosh, this is what I need. I need this place to name my mom, to name my mother-in-law, to talk about their life, to talk about their death. And then like you experienced eventually, uh, no surprise, so many other people said, yes, please, I need that too. It's why we're talking, you know, because it grew from there. So I'm wondering in the beginning to stay with that moment, what was that first, let's gather. Well, after I was inside of a ritual space, that I wasn't leading, I was a participant. And I felt the power of that. And the kind of the, almost like this collective sigh of, oh, that's what's been missing, is to be side by side with many others on the ground, weeping, weeping, howling, bellowing, uh, and not, you know, the polite grief that we've been taught to do and almost to apologize for our tears, you know, but to actually be in a space where that is encouraged and permitted. And one of the most beautiful things I encountered in that first several grief rituals was that when you return from the, the grief shrine is you're welcomed back and you're thanked. Imagine being thanked for your grief. And how profound that was to feel like, oh, my God, there's a homecoming for my sorrow. And they appreciated it. And what I learned pretty quickly, Ned, was that, you know, our griefs may vary. I, you know, you might be dealing with the suicide of a partner or a death of a child you know, you know or a, a divorce or um, more and more people are coming because of grief for the earth. But you begin to realize this isn't my grief. This is ours. And so what I began to speak about in the, in the grief rituals I was leading is that this is our communal cup. I mean, part of our grief is that we've been taught that this is private. And so to come out of privacy back into community, there's so much grief about that. It's like I often say how strange it is that we need a, a workshop on grief. How weird is this that we have to gather together, you know, pay for a workshop just to have the privilege of grieving together. And people have come from Australia and England, Canada, all across the country, and it's wonderful they come. I'm so grateful. But it's symptomatic, isn't it? It's saying that, by and large, we have forgotten this, these commons of the soul. We've forgotten how to grieve together. And so you have to travel for that rare privilege of having the opportunity to grieve together and to be acknowledged and and share the, and, and help empty the communal cup of grief that we're all carrying. So when we leave there, as we're leaving there, we feel this spaciousness in our hearts. And I often say at the end of the ritual, no, we didn't do this just for ourselves. 
We did this to free the heart up so we can love this world more ardently. So we can pour ourselves back into the streets, back into the youth, back into the watersheds. We grieve because we want to express our love more fully for what it is that we that we hold dear. You know? Mm. Yeah. Yes. Um, boy, I love getting to that, those senses, um, those words. Because I think part of my, I think this matters in terms of a culture like you've described, and, and I think listeners are present to a culture that negates or anesthetizes, doesn't feel there's room or even a need or it's too much that, that those two words, right? It's too much, um, to, to think success usually equates to like getting the thing, um, overcoming the thing or, uh, what's the, there's another word I'm looking for here. It's like destructive a little bit, you know, it's conquering, you know, to be like, we did it. We got all the grief handled. Um, it's, it's almost to me, something that's come up in preparing to talk with you is that question of this is an, a cup that does need to be emptied and it's a cup that continually gets filled. It will oh, keep yeah. getting filled with grief. And so I think our aversion is, well, when does it stop? You know? And so to hear words that I guess acknowledge a version of, okay, it won't. And here's what it means to keep returning. Here's what it means to keep returning. Keep emptying. Yeah, I mean, if we don't do that, that's when we, the heart gets congested. So grief was not meant to be uh, held in a steady state in our bodies. We need to keep it moving. You know, one of the ideas of grief work is that we can get current, that we can actually get present in our life. Most of the time we're chewing old bones. We might be chewing bones of our ancestors, you know, just old material that we never really finish because we haven't dealt with the grief of that. So what I love about grief work is that it helps us get current. I can actually be in this present moment. The other thing I like about that term is that I also feel the electricity of life, the current of life. And I can also be in the flow of life, the current of life. So that, that word is very potent for me around grief work is that uh, you get to feel more alive. See, our association with grief is oftentimes akin to depression. That somehow to feel grief, to feel sorrow is to feel depressed. Well, there's no truth to that. Unexpressed grief can lead to a depressed state because of the, you know, when people come to my office, they talk about depression, but it's, it's oppression. It's the, it's the sediment of grief that hasn't been acknowledged. So when we are current, when we're moving the grief, grief is feral. It is alive. It is wild. You cannot domesticate grief. And when you're in it, you feel, you don't feel deadened. You feel radically alive. It's difficult. You know, you've gone through several intense personal losses, but there's also the collective losses and the planetary losses. And if we don't stay current with that, we will end up kind of receding from our own vitality, from our own life. And we will back our way into the grave which is a terrible, terrible, you know, destiny or a fate, I should say. It's more of a fate. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I feel that I'm, it's, it doesn't feel selfish, but it's the right word to acknowledge that I'm getting this time with you 
thank goodness to share with others, but getting this time with you from not, not to say we're on the same path at all, but to be in an early stage of this work for me. Um, and, and even like 10 years in still feeling like the newness of learning and, um, facilitation and holding others with empathy and openness and rawness. And so I wonder if, if you can relate to, you know, I always have the question of like, well, the schooling and your work in therapy was the beginning. So it's maybe there's ways with the individual, you learned what it means to make room for other people's heartbreak, trauma, their crises, their grief, and not carry it yourself. And this might spill into the part of your book that matters so much to me, which is this topic of silence and aloneness. Um, and if it doesn't spill into that, okay, that's okay. We can visit it a little later in our conversation, but I'm wondering if you can speak to what it means to make room and make room for the thing that's so often been like, it's, it's a lot, it's too much. And in fact, it really has the cup overfloweth, right? Or the cup has become so enormous that when you finally make room, it's like, Oh my goodness, look how much. And for someone like you doing this for decades, what does it look like? Has it, has there been a time where you left feeling, Oh boy, um, there's an impact on me making this room that needs to be addressed. Uh, there's a way that I make the space uh, that I need to kind of uh, refine the space to make sure that we're not just leaving maybe potentially more burden with other people's heartbreak and grief. I wonder if you can speak to that. Well, the first thing I would say is that my job isn't to help someone get over their grief. Uh, my My work is to teach them how to befriend and accompany their grief. In a sense, what we're trying to learn in therapy is how to trust grief. Because I think we have a great suspicion of grief, that it's there to take us hostage, that it's somehow, if I, I mean, I can't tell how many times I've heard the phrase, if I go there, I'm never coming back. I'm going to drown in that territory. And what I say to them, if you don't go there, you're never coming back. Because in a sense, we spend so much of our psychic energy trying to keep that at bay. And what we want to do I have to, to stop with that about. sentence. You yeah. say that sentence. <laughs> Again, you said if we don't go there, you, I've, I've read that from you before. I've heard it before. But it, it's if you don't go there, you won't come back. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there, again, if we think about how much of our life force gets trapped inside of grief, and if we sequester grief in some furthest room in the house, it's like watching uh, a hemorrhage of soul force over time. You begin to lose vitality, you begin to lose your life through the repression and denial of sorrow. So I learn, I help people to learn how to tolerate slow encounters with grief. And part of what I'm trying to do is help them give grief a bottom. Because again, I, I use that metaphor in, the, in my book about so few of us had grief welcomed in our families, in our communities, in our educational systems. So when grief comes around, when you get close to it, you look over it. It's, it's like a free fall. You look like you're about to go and never find ground. So by teaching people how to come in contact, we're slowly putting a a foundation underneath their grief that they can begin to actually trust it again. That it's, it's not there 
to take them away from life, but that's actually how we re-enter life. Now, grief itself is its own terrain, its own psychic terrain, and it's um, in myth and, and story and fairy tale, it is that underworld territory. It's not the daylit room, and we are such a daylit culture. I mean, my God, we're so fixated on the light, even in our spiritual tradition. We're always talking about the light. And so we are, we are terrified of the dark. And grief, by its very nature, the gravitational pull of grief is into the dark. And that's where the holiness lies as well. There's that beautiful line of Rilke's, he said, and yet, no matter how deeply I go down into myself, my God is dark and like a webbing made of a hundred roots that drink in silence. So maybe that takes us into silence and solitude, I don't know. But, but it's, this, it's this mistrust we have of anything that takes us down. We live in a very heroic culture, so we like things rising. We like everything going up. You know, but when it begins to go down, which is where grief takes us into the descent, we get scared. We get terrified and we scramble and clamor and try to scrape our way back up into the daylit world. And we miss the treasure that comes from being in the darkness for any prolonged time. You return kind of with oh, gold dust on you from that underworld walk. You don't come back empty-handed. If you go there with fidelity, if you go there with a willingness to be remade by grief, you return with medicine for the community. That's what I've seen hundreds and hundreds of times. Yeah, you return with medicine for the community. Ooh. There's words you just used that feel pretty important to highlight, and and I think it's it's still kind of staying with the how can it be suddenly too much, you know, to make room like this? We don't want to re-traumatize ourselves or drown ourselves. even though I feel like you're also kind of saying that won't happen, <laughs> you know, like, trust me. But also to make sure that doesn't happen, approach slowly. You said that a slow approach. I wonder if you can expand on that because I feel like the other option is just a, a lot of room, maybe too uh, coarsely, too suddenly, um, some kind of dump that, like I described earlier, some of what I'm still questioning is, what does it mean to make room? There's times, just as an example, where someone might come and say, I just feel like this is too much. Uh, you know, I can't keep going to this workshop because it's it's feeling like it's making what I'm dealing with harder to deal with. A really good example, just one example of of uh, a moment in, in the work I do with community where I, it makes me ask, uh Oh, like, how did I do this wrong? You know, was it too much? Did we go too fast? Uh, hopefully that's not too much to speak to, but I guess the main words is the slow approach. Maybe if you can speak to that, expand on that a little. No, I really appreciate what you're saying, Ned, because I think that's, that's really crucial to not take a, a very heroic approach to the work, but actually, come in gently. Uh, there's an idea from um, John O'Donohue, the Irish poet and philosopher, priest. Um, he said, uh, what you encounter, recognize, or discover depends to a large degree on the quality of your approach. When we approach with reverence, 
great things decide to approach us. So that's such a beautiful anthem for a life, you know, approach of reverence. So part of what I'm doing by the slow titration of working with grief with individuals is teaching them that we're actually, as, as um, Oscar Wilde said, where there is sorrow, there is holy ground, that we're actually approaching holy ground. Let's approach with reverence. And as we do that, and as we approach slowly, humbly, we begin to feel what comes back to us, the great energy that's withheld, that's held within grief begins to come to us. And we emerge, I think I said, as I said many times, we emerge radically changed by this. Yeah. I appreciate your tears very much, Ned. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, there's joy in those tears too, because I'm just, well... Thank you. Yeah, I'm, I'm so grateful to be with you like this. You so often this this might seem like a leap in, in our trajectory, but it suddenly matters a lot to me to acknowledge this. And it might be all I'm doing. It's not a question, but I bet there's much to say from how this is an element of what you do. Such so good to have people like you who are great at remembering quotes and reciting poems and pieces of poems, not yours always. Sometimes like there's been time, there's a, a moment in your book, I recall where it's like, you might share a poem you wrote that, that helps you highlight something, a point you're trying to make, but often you use other people's poetry and words. And then I would bet in ritual, probably music. And so I'm wondering about that. Uh, element of of grief ritual and in your work the value and importance of that my my immediate well the reason why I do it is because those artists those writers those musicians they those creatives they did what you described right that's the gold dust they come back with you know it's the poem I wonder if you could share a little bit about that oh yeah I mean I could talk for hours about that um we share a lot of poetry, a lot of singing, a lot of movement, a lot of dance. It's, I'll tell you a quick background story. I was teaching at the Minnesota Men's Conference uh, a few years ago, and, and uh, I got to spend much more time with a man named Miguel Rivera. And Miguel is a master drummer. He's from Guatemala. He lives in Los Angeles. Works a lot with gangs and uh, youth, and um, but he was saying at the beginning of one of our one of our times together, he said, "You know, in my village, in Guatemala, we 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 sing and we dance and then we drum for five hours, and then we talk for ten minutes." <laughs> you see the problem already, don't you? We talk for five hours, and maybe we sing and dance for ten minutes. He said that. The elders said that might be part of the problem with you people up there in, in that country. Is we've forgotten the value of music and dance and song and poetry. That's the primary soul language. And so when you're working with grief, you need to speak a language that resonates with the soul. So we bring in the poets. We bring in the chants. We bring in all of those elements. And they are the primary way that we communicate all three days. We I, I teach a little bit, but it's mostly, in, in a sense, what we're trying to do is create a room of attunement 
so that we're all in a, in, in, a, in a resonant signature. So by the time we get to the grief ritual, we are we are going as a village. And, you know, on any given day, you may not grieve, but somebody else in the village will. And if that person grieves, you will come away feeling different because we wept, not I wept, but we wept. You know, so we try to work a lot with the idea of village mind when we're there together, that how do we think like a village? Because the healing is also, I, I don't even like using that word healing. That's too industrial strength word. It's too. Um, okay, it's, this feels this feels pretty important <laughs> then. And not like I disagree. I'm like, okay, say more. <laughs> say more about that, because I think you're right. You're right. You're right. Part of what I'm selling. And I forgive me for that word, too. But when I post online about one of our offerings, usually it is like a healing with writing or grief and healing. Can you say, can you say more? And sorry if I cut you off from finishing a thought up no, there, no, no. but that felt really important to make more I, room I for. I appreciate that. I appreciate that. Well, you know, we, we put so much emphasis, like, like healing is a final state. Like, well, I, I, I'm healed. I've, I've done this. And what I appreciate more is this, like this idea from uh, the Spanish poet Jaime Gil de Biedma, where he said, I believed I wanted to be a poet. But deep down, I just wanted to be a poem. So this idea of healing is like, I want to be healed rather than I want to be in the flow of things. So rather than healing, how do I ampl amplify my aliveness? You know, there's just too much, uh, too much weight associated with this term that, I mean, like working with the cancer community, which I do you know, several times a year at Commonweal, um, that word gets used a lot and it becomes almost laden with this expectation that if I do it right, I will be healed. And if I don't do it right, then, you know, I'm basically screwed, you know? And so I don't like using that word. That feels especially, yeah, that community feels especially valuable to, to use as an example of what, what we get hung up on with the, yeah. in our culture, right? The, well, here's what success looks like. And, right. and I don't know if I'm ready to dive into the cancer patient. Well, maybe, maybe it's time because yeah, yeah. May, I feel like it's time. Thank you for that. The yeah. healing. Yeah. The, the, I just so appreciate your articulation of that. Maybe we could kind of the one of my questions was what is unique about working with cancer patients in your experience? And this feels like one of the things, right? It's the way them at their edge of mortality, of 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 um, sickness, of of life. You know, the mortal the mortal the mortality confrontation of a diagnosis. And so I'm wondering both like, what is your story into working with cancer patients like you do? And by the way, working, maybe uh, we maybe we also need to <laughs> drop that word to describe what we're up to um, and would love thoughts on that, too. This is what's going to happen. <laughs> Let me stay focused. Uh, the question right now is, what is the story that led to you making room for cancer patients in your in your work? And what is unique about that work? Okay. That community. Good, good beautiful questions. Well, I, ironically, the entry into that came through a cancer patient. Uh, her name was Stephanie. And 
Stephanie called me one time many years ago saying, I hear you do these grief rituals. Why would I want to come? And we talked for about 20 minutes or so. She said, okay, I'll come. And she had a profound experience. All the losses that had never really been fully honored in her life, the loss of her breasts or, you know, friendships, uh, dreams, work, all of these losses that you endure and you're, and meanwhile, you're going through all these treatments and, you know, it's hard to process all that. Well, here she had a container for it and she kept coming. She came to like four or five grief rituals in a row, you know, which we did. We were doing like three or four a year at that point. I was ambitious. <laughs> um, and then I get an email one day um, saying, uh, Francis, meet Michael. Michael, meet Francis. This is Michael Lerner from the Commonwealth Cancer Help Program saying, you two, I'm very picky about the men in my life, and you two must meet each other. So I had just self-published my little book. It was At that point, it was called Entering the Healing Ground, because uh, no one at that point in 2011 wanted to publish it. It was, um, you know, grief wasn't there yet. So Michael and I got together. We did a couple um, new school conversations about my work and and at that time, one of their primary facilitators was dying of cancer. And so Michael said, would you be interested in sitting in and seeing if this is a fit? So I did. And it was like being in ritual ground. I mean, you the moment you begin the process there, you have left ordinary time and you've dropped into liminal space. You are in this deeply sacred territory particularly because all pretense has been left at the gate. We all know while we're sitting there, the gravity of the conversation, what it is we're dealing with is this threshold time between this world and the one that's coming. So I felt so at home there. Uh, I, you know, I do twice a year I go there and I've been doing it since 2013. So this is my Beginning of my 11th year, I've done about 20 of these weekends, week-long week retreats. And they're one of the most powerful times because when we do the group work, it's ironic. We rarely talk about cancer. What we talk about is the unlived life. And part of what cancer brings to the foreground is all that I have neglected, all that I've abandoned, all that I've set aside out of shame, out of, you know, I don't matter. All of the wounds that have allowed me to set aside my life. Cancer says, in a sense, it brings it to the foreground and says, this must be touched before you leave here. And so that's the depth of the work is a lot about grief, about what we've neglected, what we've abandoned, what got left behind, the dreams, the, the creative efforts, the relationships, uh, the thing, our own bodies, everything that we've denied. And I frame my work there with them in the with this idea of rough initiation. That what they're experiencing is a rough initiation. That the moment they got that phone call or the diagnosis being told them in person or however it came to them, they were beginning an initiatory process. All initiations contain three things. One, there's a, a severing from the world that you once knew. So you went from being a, a person who's just normally going through their life to somebody who now has cancer. 
The second thing is that there's a radical alteration in your sense of identity. That I'm no longer who I thought I was. I'm no, I'm no longer invulnerable to the world. I'm no longer, you know, in charge of my own experience. And the third thing that you realize in true initiation is that you can never go back to the world that was. Now, in a healthy initiatory context, those are good things. In a traumatized context or a rough initiation, these are terrifying things. The rupture, the ending of the world that you knew. I can't tell you how many times I've heard in that, in that context, I don't know who I am anymore. And one of the sad things about the medical systems is they're trying to get you back to where you were. Bad thing. It's like when I was working with this man in my office who had this heart attack, I think I wrote about it, that he kept, you know, eagerly trying to get back to his corporate job. And that's all he wanted to do. And I said, you're going to waste a perfectly good heart attack. You know, that this is an opportunity. There's an invitation here to step into a new experience, a new sense of identity. So we work with this idea of initiation a lot in that context. And I think it helps to give a, a larger holding space for what's happening to them. It isn't just a medical condition. It's actually a soul invitation to step into a larger identity, to become more of what it is that the soul came here to incarnate. And for most of us, we haven't really done that. We've learned how to become, you know, nice people, but we haven't really learned how to embody the experience of a living soul. So cancer gives this massive nudge down the road. Get to it. Yeah. It matters so much to me, it matters so much to us, to the whole team here at You're Going to Die, that we make what's needed more easily available than ever before, especially in these things we're going through, the grief, the hard parts of being mortal. We want what we offer to be easily available to you. And the podcast is a great version of that. Not that different from other podcasts, right? Our podcast is free, that's no surprise, but that matters to us a lot. And I think you know, it doesn't cost nothing to get these episodes out every week. I gotta take a moment to encourage you to support what we're up to here with You're Going to Die, the podcast. Three things I wanna highlight right now, action you can take. And by the way, some of these actions don't cost any money. 
They just cost time. How much time? Maybe seconds of your life, maybe minutes to support the amount of time and effort we put into this show happening every week for you. Number one, rate and review the show. You don't need me to say more about that. I don't need to explain. Go into your podcast app and rate and review the show. I cannot express enough how much it matters to get ratings and reviews. It makes us more visible. It connects us to more listeners. It legitimizes what we're up to. It's an invaluable, simple, invaluable way to support You're Going to Die the podcast. You can do it right now while you're listening to me talk about what you can do to support the podcast, you can go and actually do it before the interview that we're sharing in this episode even starts up again. So number one, rate and review the podcast. Number two, word of mouth. If this show is making you feel anything of value, if it's teaching you anything at all, if it's entertaining you even a little bit, if it's making your heart open, if it's making you cry, if it's making you laugh, if it's moving you at all in a valuable way, Share that with someone you care about. Text it, email it, mention it in conversation, especially those people out there that you know have suffered loss, that are grieving, that are wondering about death and dying. You know, you know the conversation we're in here. You know when it comes up, when you're talking to someone you care about, tell them, hey, here's a podcast that'll meet you there. It's You're Going to Die, the podcast. It's pretty much everywhere podcasts are listenable. Check it out. So that's number two, word of mouth, share the podcast. And then number three, thanks to those of you who have become new patrons on our Patreon account. We have a Patreon account. It is true. You can contribute as little as $2 a month, for example. Just don't get two or three pints of ice cream this year and take that money and contribute it to this podcast being more easily produced because you said no ice cream a little less this year, a fraction of an amount this year. And instead, I'm going to take that money and I'm going to give it to You're Going to Die the Podcast. You can go to patreon.com forward slash YG2D. The link is in our show notes or go to patreon.com and search for YG2D. That is our 501c3 nonprofit. Yes, we are a 501c3 nonprofit. So any way you can support what we're up to in the world matters so much. But I got to end with this acknowledgement. Thank you for already doing the most important thing you can do, which is listening to our show. feeling in my own life, you know, as I creep up on 70, is uh, the need to rest and um, the need to 
account for the things that I also that also bring pleasure into my life. I'm a good worker. I mean, I can I can put it out there, but oftentimes that's part of the problem is that we become so conditioned to this one-dimensional element of what valued, what is valued is productivity. Is putting it out there of the next book, the next workshop, the next, you know, lecture series and and I value everything I've done. I, I, I'm, I'm grateful that I've been able to do it, but there's also a need to, to, you know, to stop, to spend time in that silence, um, to go into deep solitude and to, I speak about it oftentimes to the cancer groups when I talk about these 10 practices to optimize the healing response of body and soul to their cancer, but it's also true to me too. And one of them is, um, creativity. And I talk about it in terms of recreation. You know, that's the word we use is recreation, but it's actually recreation. That when we're only putting out the next thing, we're exhausting the psychic field. And when I have to recreate, I have to come back into the regenerative space of inhalation, of being inspired, of taking in to body and soul, so it becomes, you know, in Rumi's image, that bird wings, you know, of extension and contraction, beautifully balanced as bird wings. I can't always be extending. Otherwise, the bird can't fly. Otherwise, I can't continue to do this work. I have to have the inhalation as well, the contraction. Mm. To come I want to, I want to stay with that that particular piece because the way you describe it feels important to kind of clarify for me and, and maybe then the listeners. Um, creation is an inhale, not a like go watch a documentary, read a book, go look at a painting, even though I imagine too, you'd say that there is so much good value in that. But I feel like you're specifically saying creation, recreation is a inhale. Me sitting down and journaling or writing a poem or painting a picture or making a, th- a song thumping on a drum is an inhale. Yes. Yeah, Meister Eckhart, the 12th century or 14th, I can't remember, a German mystic said that God is a deep underground river that no one can dam up and no one can stop. Well, how do you tap into that deep underground river? So that's the value of practice. You know, whether it's writing or painting or knitting, it doesn't matter. But it's that repetition that digs the well. And when you've dug dug that well and you tap into that underground river, you can feel the nourishment of that. You can feel the replenishment. And what I learned growing up in Wisconsin as a boy, all my uncles had farms and all of them had, you know, pump wells out there. And it's the best water you ever drank in your life. But if you don't keep pumping the water, the capillaries close and the well goes dry. So it's not that water isn't there, but you stop the process of, drawing up the water you know you have to keep drawing the water so in this time where we feel almost guilty for stopping slowing down pausing breathing resting that is i think as much part of the medicine as anything that we offer because i think part of the grief we carry is how much we have gotten away from um, just caring for our own beings, 
and getting so caught up in the machinery. I remember my friend Maladoma Somme once saying to me, um, you have to be very careful what you associate with because over time you'll begin to match its rhythm. And we spend so much time on these devices and so much time staring at these screens that we begin to match that rhythm. And the rhythm of the machine is productivity. Do, 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 do. So for us to step out of the machine and come back into that reverence of approach, including to our own lives, to you know, taking a walk with, the, with our grandkids and playing in the river with them, not very productive. But my God, how immeasurably restorative is that time, right? I can almost use the word healing, but I, I didn't. Yeah. <laughs> Good catch. Good catch. Good catch. Yeah. Um, thanks for <laughs> thanks for naming Maladoma, and and I just just so. Uh, feel you know that loss and even here as you talk about him how alive he is for you still yeah, he's I on, imagine. He's on my little shrine back there and uh, yeah I miss him <laughs> yeah mm -hmm. mm. And, and worth noting Francis like for sure Maladoma for me in terms of I was thinking of your book and of water and the spirit thinking about like what I must tell people, you need a book on grieving. You need a book on ritual. You, you know, your two are top, you know, top, top of the list for me. And so I'm using this moment to say thanks again for saying yes, to this conversation emphasized now by knowing you're at a stage of life at a place in life where you need to be choice about how you spend your time <clears throat> and honoring that. And, and so then thank you for saying, okay, yeah. And I get that Ladybird worth a shout out. Ladybird is certainly, I'm sure, a good voucher. Yes, yes. What a beautiful soul. Mm, my goodness. So thank you. This is another thank you moment. But then also the acknowledgement of you are part of my lineage of teachers, and so why it why it's so moving and 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 exciting and and so many words to be with you in this way. So just another, another of the many thank yous getting present to my gratitude here, sharing this conversation and getting to listen to you speak to these things that matter so much to me. Um, mm, I'm glad. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe just a little moment to say, when do you, when did you say, Oh my gosh, I need to go play in the, the, the river with my grandchildren, you know, what, what did you notice occurring? You'd be like, stop badgering me about the, like, what's the too much, uh, measurement, you know, but it, it matter. I, again, I think you understand by now I'm at a place in my work where it's a, it's a, it's a big question. And so I'm wondering for you, what is the measurement for that? Did you feel tired, tired, you know, did you feel angry? Did you feel, you know, what are, what is the ways that manifests? Um, well, I was doing an interview with Dwayne Elgin and uh, his partner, Colleen. I wrote the preface for Dwayne's last book, Choosing Earth, which was a profoundly important book. Uh, and at one point, Dwayne's asking me, so, so Francis, you know, what are we supposed to be doing? How, how do we do this? Uh, 
how do we make a difference? And I said, Dwayne, you've been doing this work for, what, 50 years or so? He goes, yes. I said, have you ever once felt like you've done enough? He said, no. I said, you know, that's part of our dilemmas. We, we, we feel like somehow we have to keep pushing the rock down the road as if what I'm doing is going to somehow make the difference. And I, it makes some difference, of course. I, I, I encourage everyone to participate. But I think part of the problem we're in is, is that hyper-focused efforting uh, we need to be able to step out. And so I, I began to pay attention to my, my tiredness. I've done close to 100 grief rituals. And uh, I was not participating as much in my own life as I was in everyone else's life. And that's, you know, that's important. I want to keep doing some of that and I want to train others to, to do it. But I also want to be inside my own life. And not feel like I was a stranger in my own existence, you know, that I participated in in being myself as fully as I can and pass that on to my children and to my grandchildren. And mm -hmm. um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it feels like, and this might be the moment to really dig into the silence and aloneness piece a little more, but also I feel like there's been, um, Enough that, especially in the ways you talked about creativity and the inhaling and recreation. But I want to say you as a testament to why the work matters should be that you are more alive than ever, more connected than ever, more present than ever. Like that should be the result of you having chose this. Not that you're just like doing more work than ever, but that you're actually in your life more than ever, you know, more deeply yeah. than ever. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I think that's Perfect way to say it. Yeah. Good mm -hmm. guess. Well, let's talk about that. You know, I feel like the long dark, you know, this is just to bring it to your note. You said you wanted to talk about the long dark as the extended period we've entered as a planetary community. And I feel like probably another way to access this other than you just starting to talk about it is um, its connection to the third gate the sorrows of the world that you talk about in your book. Um, so uh, let's go there. Mm, yeah. I think if you're, as I've been leading grief rituals over the years, um, the very beginning, like, there might be one or two people there in the circle who are there because of what's happening to the world. The last ones I've been doing before pandemic and over half the people were there because of earth grief. So there's this increasing awareness as psyche, as our psyches are becoming more aware of the inseparability between what's internally and what's happening externally, as if there's such a thing. They are so entangled with one another that what I'm feeling is not my own personal histories, but I'm, I'm feeling also what is unraveling in front of us. Um, again, whether it's culturally, economically, socially, but most especially what's happening tangibly to the environment, to our, our very ground of our being. And we, we've crossed some pretty clear threshold times. Uh, 
in our ability to repair and restore earth capacity to, to mend and restore its equilibrium, we've crossed those thresholds. So we are now entering into a time that's that's in some levels inevitable. Um, we are going to see layers and layers of extinctions, uh, mass migrations, refugee situations, uh, hunger, water shortages. In this, in this preface I wrote for Duane's book, Choosing Earth, one of the things I said was that, keynote, that, that grief will be the keynote for the, for the foreseeable future. So this is what we're what we're heading into, and I and I, I came the image of the long dark came to me that what we're entering into is a time of descent. We are entering. This is a time of not knowing. It's a time of of just of, of decay, of endings, of things falling apart. And to use the imagery of darkness again, like I said earlier in our conversation, isn't to talk about it in a despairing way, or a frightening way, but actually as a way. That is necessary. In the old alchemical traditions, they talked about the negredo as the beginning point for all soul work. It all begins in the blackening. When we go into times of decay, into times of death, where negredo was called the subtle dissolver. But we're not so subtle right now. Things are dissolving around us. Old structures like racism, uh, economic in, in, uh, injustice, gender injustice, um, eco ecological destruction. These things are all having to be reckoned with right now. And hopefully in the process of reckoning, ending some of these that are dying and decaying. So the long dark is a, is a time of deep gestation where we have to stop and become utterly quiet in our capacity to listen to what is happening and what is being dreamt by the earth. Um, we are most receptive to dreaming when we're asleep, but we can also become receptive to dreaming while we are still. There's this wonderful Inuit term called kartsaluni. And kartsaluni translates as sitting together quietly in the dark, waiting expectantly for something creative to occur. That's where we are right now. In the long dark, we're not going to figure our way out of this place. We have no idea how to get from here to some emergent culture, probably within you know a minimum two generations. We're looking at least 50 years, at least 50 years, before we can begin to see the seeds of that new culture germinating. I'm not going to see that. You're probably not going to see that. But our time in the long dark right now is to listen and to sit quietly in that darkness and wait for any note, any seed that we can find and put that in the ground for those generations that might still be here. Even that's not guaranteed anymore. I mean, if you just sit with that reality, you could weep for a hundred years that we don't even know I don't know if my grandchildren will have children. They're here, but I don't know what lies ahead for them. So the long dark is a period of um, great uncertainty, a time of where, where we have to live with the unknown. 
And so when we get into that territory, the only thing that makes sense is to lean towards soul and the soul of the world. That's where we enter into imagination and ritual and creativity and uh, reverence and, you know, um, building houses of belonging for one another. Uh, that's where we go into soul activism, uh, where we can really be informed more by soul than by my heroic ideas of who I, what I think we should do. Who has an idea right now that could possibly change the course of the future? We don't know. So we have to do something that we haven't done for several thousand years, which is to get quiet and listen and be informed by the long dark. What is being dreamt here that could possibly lead us back to living culture? And living cultures are those cultures, and there's still quite a few of them around the planet, that have learned to, to live in relationship, mutuality and reciprocity with the land base. The San people have been where they are for over 125,000 years. We've barely been here for 500 years as white Westerners, and we've you know, gasping for air. So what have we forgotten in that time? So I think part of what we can do in the long dark is begin the process of remembering, remembering what it looks like to be a human being. What, what does it look like to be in a human being in reciprocity with watershed, with salmon, with oak trees, with, you know, wren and osprey and that, um, yeah, that's enough, but that's the long dark that we're entering into. It's frightening, but it's also carrying the unripened seeds of our collective initiation. And if we can bring warmth to those seeds, and if we can water them with our tears, those seeds might possibly generate into something that keeps our young ones leaning into something that's worth living for. I said thank you so much to Francis in our conversation. I've said so much about why it mattered to have Francis on the show. And I got to say it one more time. Thank you, Francis, for saying yes to being here on the show with me. Definitely one of those 
hugely significant life moments to be with a teacher who already has had a hugely significant impact on me. So then, wow, what a thing to have a talk like we shared here. Thank you, Francis Weller. If you want to connect to Francis Weller's work, go to FrancisWeller.net. The link is in the show notes. There's sort of a hidden newsletter link in the website. Just look for it. It's there, but it might take a little bit to get to. He told me that's the best way to stay connected to what he's up to, including notifications about upcoming grief ritual workshops, grief offerings. He's got a specific offering for facilitators, him doing facilitation with people that do grief facilitation coming up in the fall and a new book that he's working on right now. So definitely go and click on the sign up for the newsletter link on Francis's website. That'll do. Nick Jaina. <laughs> That'll do. <laughs> Is that a new thing you're trying out? I, I just, you know, trying to enliven the transition into, hey, Nick Jaina. I pictured like a cartoon you like sticking his head through a cartoon circle with a thumbs up. Give it a, give it a, give it a, give it a, <laughs> that'll do. Uh, what's going on, Nick? How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you. Cool. Great. So glad to be here with you. Uh, this is, I have a question for you today. Oh, great. Um, I kind of remember like the Ani DeFranco episode, you talking about what it meant to go into Righteous Babe Records and even just be in the space of, of mm -hmm. Ani DeFranco's record label and the, the, the reason being like the significance being because you're a musician and feeling that lineage of the musicians who've come before you doing stuff in a way that have inspired and taught you, um, and influenced the way you're in the world with your music. And so I, I'm very clearly, I've made it very clear to everybody <laughs> how big a deal it was to be in this conversation with Francis as a version of that. And I'm wondering if you can speak to that, if you can speak to that teacher lineage, maybe with writing, but kind of you, you do so much could be with music. It could be now, the lineage of podcast producers that you feel influenced and taught by. But I'm wondering if you have something to share about that topic and maybe including stories of people you've met that you were like, oh my gosh, fill in the name here. I'm so glad I'm meeting you. Here's why this matters to get this moment with you. Uh, the first one that comes to mind is our friend Olivia Pepper, a.k.a. L.V. Pepper, who was always so uh, blunt, I would say, <laughs> in her teachings of me around feminism, progressivism, uh, racial equality. And I was in the position of, aren't I doing enough? I voted for Hillary. I live in Portland. I recycle, you know. And she was like, very clearly, no, that's not enough. You yeah. know, like you need to go further. Mm -hmm. And I, it, to a degree that I think uh, some people might just be like, I don't want this is uncomfortable or I feel bad because this person told me I said the wrong thing, you know. But I'm so grateful over the years for that uh, teaching, really, you know, because you that's how her, her as a teacher or a friend first. We were friends and then we were co-teaching. And so we got to do some residencies where we spent like a couple of weeks together, like living together, basically. And that's when really came out of that's when it really like emerged, like the the values that she has and like what she goes through her life thinking, you know, mm -hmm. and it just um, it's 
I don't know if you got into this with, with your thing, but like there's the shadow side of teachers that like they push you into this new realm. And sometimes maybe you can't go back to a comfortable place and you might like lose some connections because of that. You lose parts of your life because you've moved. Uh, I didn't even want to talk about it as like progression, but like you've moved to a different place, you know? Yeah. And, um, I definitely found that with my teachers is now I can see these things that they're so patiently pointing out to me. So, so ardently showing to me and I can't not see them. And then I tried to take on some of that teacher role with other people and it's not received as well. Mm. <laughs> um, you know, other people uh, maybe uh, don't yeah, want to hear it or it's not the right mm -hmm. time or, you know, maybe I'm too excited about it. I'm too recent. And they're like, what do you mean? Like just last year you were blah, blah, blah. Um, yeah. So it is a, a challenging path. I, you know, there's turbulence there. I just want to acknowledge like you, you learn to grow up and you learn some things and then you can't go back to the nest. You know? Ah, interesting thing to highlight with this question. I'm trying to figure out how I can relate to that. Yeah. I guess Steven Jenkinson would be, by the way, everyone we're, we're like not purposely listing people that have been guests on the show. But if you wanted to listen to Olivia Pepper's interview, uh, it's one of the first episodes Nick and I worked on together. Definitely recommend it, recommend them and who they are. And then Steven Jenkinson for me, boy, Steven Jenkinson's definitely a like call you out, question your question. That's not the right question. Um, I, I did have some of that with Francis here in this conversation, especially a moment of him highlighting the word healing as a, as one that has issue. Um, and you know, so often that's a word I use in naming our workshops, naming the cancer mm -hmm. patient workshop. Mm -hmm. Um, interesting. Yeah. And the respect for that, I imagine you're expressing, it's like, it's uncomfortable and you want that out of life. You want to keep pushing. You want to get called out ultimately as uncomfortable as it is, as sometimes even unnecessary as it maybe feels, you want the kind of wise, tender hearted person who can be really direct, say, no, that's not good enough, or you're thinking about it the wrong way, or have you ever considered this? It's going to overhaul your <laughs> identity yeah. to date. Yeah. It's the sign of a real friend because the mm -hmm. alternative is just kind of silently backing away and not mm -hmm. bringing it up, but then like closing themselves off from you and you don't know why you never get to talk about it. It's like, what, mm -hmm. what, what happened? You know? Yeah. I would so much rather have somebody in the moment say like, Hey, that word you just used, like, that's not cool. You know? Yeah. Um, as awkward as it, you know, you blush and you feel bad and you like want to go hide under a blanket, but that's growth, you know, mm -hmm. that's learning. That's right. Uh, I'm wondering for the writing side, if there's a story you can share of meeting a favorite writer in your life ever that you got to go up to, even if it was a moment of just getting an autograph, but to say, hey, uh, you've mattered this much to why I do what I do. Mm hmm. Uh, there's a story in my first book about meeting Nicholson Baker. I don't know if you know him. Mm -hmm. uh, he was just giving a talk at a book event that I was also at. And just something in his just humility and, you know, like the stars of the literary world, uh, save for a few J.K. Rawlings or Stephen King's, are still just normal people, like <laughs> going back to a motel and like, <laughs> you know, they're not like yeah. on private jets and stuff. Right. Um so something about the, the, just the, the grace and the, uh, kindness and intelligence of, of him in the brief meeting I had. And I got to like 
just drive him to his motel because he was just like standing on the corner, like like waiting for a bus. He's like, do you need a ride? But yeah, yeah, yeah. That was, Um, I had a little bit of that with Steven Jenkinson. It was the like, I have to get a ride, give him a ride from the airport. You know, it just worked out that I could do that. That's That's my dream for any, any potential hero meeting. (laughs) If I could like possibly give them something (laughs) rather than like, I'm in the reception line after a big event and I'm just shaking their hand, you know, like just frame it in a way that I could just, even just like, pick up a quarter that they dropped and hand it to them. You know, it just changes the relationship. Mm, so that, that cool. one sticks in my mind. Just, just to know that there are people like you and that they've worked hard and that, yeah. like, you know, like that, that's as much of an inspiration as anything. Yeah. Thanks. I, I like the kind acknowledging you've repeatedly described these human beings, all of the people that you've mentioned is like kind and, yeah. and friendly and boy, don't we just hope that is the case. Of course, like how ridiculous would it be to get on this, you know, call with Francis Weller and have him just be so mean <laughs> and dismissive. Uh, mm-hmm. But, but you know, there's a part of us that's like, is this real? Is this thing that's mattered so much to yeah. me connect to a human that's real and simply in the world in kind ways and, and within reach their humanness, you know, like that you could even offer something to them like a ride in your car. Yeah. Well, thanks for listening, everybody. Really hope you enjoyed this episode. I'm just feeling very present to like how grateful I am to be doing this um, particular project as a part of what we do with You're Going to Die, our 501c3 nonprofit. So don't forget, always remember there's so many ways to support what we're up to, share what we're up to with the people you care about. Um, I just can't say it enough. Uh, We're just so glad you're here. Thanks for listening. Bye, everybody. Until next time. 